Can artificial intelligence be used to replicate biological systems? As it turns out, although we have a long ways to go, to some degree the answer now is yes. There are big pharmaceutical companies who need to understand how individual cells respond to individual compounds, and as it turns out, it is possible to simulate cells and to simulate their responses to those compounds. But the process is somewhat complicated, although the ramifications, should the breakthroughs and progress be made in that domain, would be rather large. We speak this week with Christoph Zale, who is the founder of Turbine.ai. He's also a PhD in bioinformatics, working at the intersection of AI and biology. And he speaks to us about what can currently be done in terms of simulating a cell and simulating its responses to chemicals, and what might the implications be, not only for pharmaceutical companies, but for hospitals looking to personalize their treatments to patients maybe a decade out as this technology progresses. So what are the actual current implications and what are the potential consequences of this sort of firm intersection of AI and biology? I found this to be kind of a unique use case of AI in the healthcare domain, certainly something we haven't covered previously on the podcast, and I hope it's useful for everybody tuned in. So without further ado, this is Christoph with Turbine.ai. So Christoph, simulating cells and their responses to drugs and chemicals is the business that you're in. Uh, A lot of your early testing was from a year ago. You're now working with big established pharma companies in this space. Let me start off with asking, What is currently possible in this domain of replicating biology in its response to chemicals or drugs? Thank you, Dan. Actually, let me just go a step back. And so a bit broader area, what we are in, is predicting basically the response of certain cells to drugs. And this is a kind of area that has currently a lot of players in and some pretty big ones as well. For example, Berg or Tuxar are, are some of the contenders here. And so what actually can be done here is, let's say, the usual way to go with this kind of drug response prediction is to basically get a lot of evidence on how a certain drug will affect different kinds of cell lines and just gather all this data and everything related and build a huge neural network into from this kind of data set and see what the outputs are. So basically use these kind of huge machine learning networks or algorithms to make some kind of prediction from it. In many cases, it actually works quite well, which means that for clinical areas where you don't really need to go inside what happens inside a single cell, they are working out okay. And of course, they're getting better each day. But for example, in the case of cancer, which is one of our prime areas, actually every single cancer is different. And it's because cancer develops because there is something wrong with the regulatory signaling pathways inside the cells. And this means in turn that for cancer to develop, you need multiple different mutations. And This, for every single cancer, is a bit different. So there is not the solid, single, huge data set that is usable for machine learning. You you won't easily get that kind of insight. So what we do and what some other people started doing is basically to build a model of the human cell 
and mainly the primarily the signaling part of the cell, the part of the cell that decides whether to leave, proliferate or die according to the inputs from the environment. So doing this, you can construct a wiring diagram of a cell and basically so you can give a lot of prior data just based on the decades of knowledge that available from biochemistry. Just to touch on this, Christoph, first and foremost, I think your point, which I think this is kind of the fascinating part of the progress in this space. And like you said, there's some really big players here. I mean, the pharma domain is, in my opinion, if, if I were to sell AI into healthcare, it would be the place to sell it into. There's so many less hiccups than selling to hospitals. And there's so much dollars here in terms of developing drugs. You're talking about replicating a particular part of a cell. In this case, this is something that ties to sort of cancer than the particular mutations that lead to cancer by sort of consuming the previous data in this sort of biochemistry domain. When it comes to building that model, what is that predicated on? In other words, when you want to sort of replicate a cell, I imagine kind of like all cancers are different, maybe to some degree different kinds of cells are different. I'm not really sure, but my estimation would be that the cells in the middle of someone's teeth might be a little bit different than the cells in the bottom of their feet that cells, just like cancer, are sort of varied. How do you determine what cells to build these replications of, and how do you even begin to do that? How do you model a cell digitally? Absolutely, Dan, and that is actually a great question. We have a wiring diagram of a general human cell, which is the same for each and every one of the cells for all of us. And to make it specific to any single kind of tissue and for a single patient we add multiple layers of data on it so this wiring diagram is basically based on just this biochemical knowledge of what proteins can connect to other proteins and so it basically describes the possibilities but these possibilities are limited in various ways on one hand every one of us carries a different genetic code which in turn makes some of these proteins more active than others and some of them less active which makes us unique as we are as human beings. So that's how we can get a model that's specific to a certain kind of person or a certain kind of cell line. On the other hand, the genetic code for the cells in your eye, in your skin, and in your hair are basically the same. But what makes them different is something called transcriptomics. So while the proteins that are there are the same, but there are very, very different quantities of them. So, for example, there are some proteins that are present in cells of the eye, but are not present in the cells of the heart. And this is another layer of data we can get. These are actually mRNA expression profiles. This is the second layer of data that's customizing our simulated cells. And with these three layers sandwiched together, we can give you a simulated cell that's specific to a certain kind of tissue for a certain patient or certain individual. Got it. Okay. There's a sort of base model that you can build. And then if you want to tweak and adjust that to be a a cell of the eye or of the heart, again, you can sort of make adjustments. So I'm kind of picking up what you're putting down. And then then the idea from there, Christoph, I suppose, is you can say, all right, given this sort of cancer scenario, maybe we're talking about melanoma. If we take chemical compound X and chemical compound Z, and you come up with whatever chemical compounds you want to use, you're able to, through sort of artificial intelligence and the systems constructed here, 
simulate how a cell, an individual cell, or I don't know, maybe a cluster thereof, would respond to this particular chemical, whether it would be likely to die off and maybe why, if it would be more likely to replicate, and if so, maybe why. From what I've gathered from our conversation off the microphone, that's kind of the gist of what is being simulated here when you're detecting sort of how drug response might happen in a a real biological system. Yes, absolutely. And in the long term, that's what we're shooting for to, to be able, so that's basically our dream, to be able to give predictions, personalized predictions for individual patients. But I'd like to stress that currently we're doing the reverse. So we are not matching drugs to patients. We are matching patients to drugs. So basically what we usually have in our project is a compound. That's where we start from. And we have to test it on multiple cell lines or even some kind of uh, patient issue. So that come from genetic data to see what gives the best response. Understood. So a drug company like a Merck or one of these other Pfizer, if they don't want to go through a gajillion lab tests, they might first say, okay, well, how does this perform in various simulations under the circumstances that we think it might have an effect? And then you're able to sort of tease out insights that might inform whether it's worth testing this in in real biological models or not. That's kind of what I'm gathering here. Yeah, sure. And that was the theory. And it turns out, actually, that the reality became uh, pretty different. So Mm. what actually happens that most of our running projects are not some kind of early phase compounds, which requires pre-testing, but many are actually in the clinical phase. And the kind of projects we are getting is things like, for example, take a certain drug, Let's say it's in phase two, and it just failed one of the phase two trials. Then they come looking for us that, hey, guys, there is this, say, subgroup of patients that didn't respond, but they definitely should have by our knowledge or by what happened inside the lab. And then we come, build our simulated cells, and run some predictions. And so the main difference here is that when you do an in vitro kind of testing, you put the cells in a petri dish and pour some drugs on them. The output you will get is basically whether the cells lived or died. But when you have simulated cells, rather than just having the raw output of the cells living or dying, which is, of course, something we have, you can actually peek inside the cells and see what goes on, what pathways are being activated, so we can get a clue and give our customers a clue on what made the cells resistant in that specific case or what biomarkers you can say that would sensitize cancer cells to their specific compound. Got it. Okay. So you're generally doing this with compounds that are already sort of in the works and being maybe pushed live into something or being tested already somewhere. So this is not a preliminary step before biological testing. This is sort of an additional layer of analysis in addition to biological testing to inform the future and the possible applications of a particular drug that's being worked on. Is that safe to say? Yes, yes, totally. That's how it turned out. That's good to know. And I think this is really interesting for the audience because it's nice to know how the industry works, where these technologies are really playing a role. Is this preliminary? Is this sort of, as it sounds like from you, this is sort of an additional layer of feedback for drug companies during regular biological testing? Very, very curious to see where this technology has found its its niche in the industry, the market, the process. The question that is not obvious to me, because it's such a unique use case, I've talked to, man, dozens and dozens of healthcare founders and healthcare AI investors really haven't talked about this use case. When I think about this, I imagine in my mind 
how is artificial intelligence facilitating this process? Why would AI be required to simulate how a cell would respond to chemicals? It would seem as though there would be some way other than artificial intelligence where maybe we could get a pretty well fleshed out or maybe not fantastically fleshed out, but we could sort of get that job done without AI. And that's only because I'm not exactly seeing where it plays its role. Where is artificial intelligence critical in this process? And how would you explain its role to a business audience? And you'd be completely right. The simulation part itself doesn't really need an AI, and we don't use an AI for that. We use some kinds of AI to set up the parameters for simulation. But what I'd say, the primary and critical part of AI, what we use is kind of AI called the search AI. It's pretty different from the standard neural networks and Bayesian networks. And so it's not exactly a machine learning kind of AI. It's more similar to what's inside your GPS when it plans your guide for your next destination. So basically what the AI does, one very interesting thing about our simulations is they're actually pretty quick. One simulation just takes a fraction of a second to run. It's actually optimized a lot. So the AI is a layer actually above the simulations and it guides the simulations and it guides what to run. For example, to take a combination drug design, what we do is Basically, it does an educated guess of what combinations in what doses would be feasible to to run. And it runs the simulations and it learns from it. And it basically tries to find the optimal combination in an optimal dose. And you can imagine it's a, it's a pretty huge search space yeah. and it would be very infeasible to do it in a laboratory. When you talk about a search space, and this is where my mind goes, and partially this is for my understanding, but I talk these things out loud so that the audience can understand as well. The best analogy that I'm thinking through for going through an unreasonable search space with artificial intelligence without leveraging, let's say, machine learning or a lot of the approaches that are, have become popular recently is sort of maybe how chess was solved to some degree many, many years ago with respect to running down all the different permutations of sort of moves as kind of branches in a given tree in maybe many more ways than a person or even realistically in a spreadsheet would be possible finding maybe the most viable or best paths to optimize for whatever we're optimizing for. Is there some rough analogy with a similar kind of, you know, it's, si- it's much more just an analogy. It's actually based on the same principles as this kind hey, of Hey, look machine. at me go, Christoph. Huh? You'd think I went to school for this stuff, right? You'd either think I went to school for this you're, stuff, you're doing great. or you'd think that I interview people about this stuff every single day. You'd think one of those two is the case. But either way, that was probably more luck than it was my genuine education, but hopefully that's useful for the people listening in, that AI is sort of running down a variety of different branches and nodes and optimizing for whatever sort of parameters, Christoph, you folks have defined. But it, there's so many here. This is not 24 options. This is you know 24 billion options. And This has to fall in the purview of AI. There's some great videos for the people listening in. There's some great videos about how this sort of decision tree branching model was used to crack chess many years ago on the MIT sort of free education YouTube channel somewhere. I forget the instructor's name now, eminent MIT professor, student of Minsky, who really explains this very, very well. And this is sort of the mental image that I have. So people might want to Google that. But I think that's useful to understand. The last question I have, now that we have an understanding of maybe what's possible here and where AI plays its role, we have the question of what this looks like five years in the future. You know, Christoph, you folks at Turbine are a reasonably new company, obviously a lot of experience, very smart people. 
as you had mentioned, there's some very big players who are also kind of competing in a somewhat similar space. You know, five years in, you guys will have grown more in terms of team and resources. These other bigger, you know, biomedical folks are probably going to be investing more in this as well. And there might be other startups in this space. As we start to become more and more accurate in sort of replicating real biological cell responses to different chemicals, what ramifications and implications does it have? The short-term, very easy thing is, well, pharma companies who leverage it might be able to test and come up with better drugs quicker. Okay, that's one. Bigger profits for pharma and certainly for a business audience that's relevant. What else really happens in terms of a difference in healthcare? What kind of implications could that sort of accurate simulation have if it really made great progress in the next, let's say, half a decade? Well, maybe not half a decade, because there are actually, to really make this technology to, to healthcare, there are actually some regulatory barriers to overcome. And that may take quite a while. Uh, uh, but let's okay, say yes. in a decade, if we would understand yes. okay, great. Uh, really how cells work, which is, I think, kind of the one of the holy grails of unsolved or the big unsolved problems of biology, I think it would actually kickstart a kind of biotech revolution that's similar to what happened when the computers and the internet got here. In that sense, I could say that we are we are in biotech basically where computers were somewhere between the 80s and 90s. So something has definitely started. We see that something is going on. And there is something big coming, but we have no idea of the sheer size of the change that's going to happen. And let's say that if we really understand and be able to manipulate just how individual cells work and form tissues, cancer would be no longer about the problem of just finding the drug that will cure your cancer. It's, it could be just about, well, okay, you have liver cancer. We'll just throw your liver out and grow a new one for you. Because these are these are the kind of things that could happen. Yeah. Okay. So this <laughs> got it. <laughs> I like the way that you worded that too. We'll just throw it out uh, and get into it. You know, my thought was okay. Well, this would really unlock personalized medicine. You're also saying that this would unlock legitimately just the raw base creation of biological materials, sort of from scratch. If we sort of knew how they worked in in that accurate of a simulated sense, that it might be possible to just kind of construct the type of cells, type of tissue that we would like in kind of a manufactured sense if we understood at a simulation level how well they worked. It sounds yes. like that's kind of and what you're may articulating. Not be even, it may be even longer dec- than a decade, but I think that's definitely one of the possibilities and one of the greatest possibilities. I'd say, on the other hand, in a shorter term, we could actually, yes, get closer to patients, as you've put it. How would this technology have is actually with simulated cells, you're not limited to the kind of tissue that are basically being grown in a lab or in a lab setting. On the other hand, we can grow simulated cells or make our simulated cells directly from patient tissue. And we believe that in the forthcoming years, despite the inaccuracies that are inherent in any kind of computer modeling, there are also huge inaccuracies when you model cell lines instead of modeling the patient tissue directly. So our patient models become closer than actually in vitro models. And we can basically jump through the first layer of lab testing and maybe go directly to PDX models or animal studies or even more, but that's that's just a dream. But the first in vitro phase is really a possibility, I think. Got it. In closing, just to get a sense of this, you know, my my job as the host of the program here is to really paint a picture 
of what AI is permitting to be possible today and what that means in the near term. Part of what that means in the near term is what industry sectors and people are going to be affected. My guess is in the the next two or three years, the technologies we're talking about today are going to be in the purview of the big pharma folks. Is there a point where this kind of simulation work happens more even in a hospital setting from a biopsy or from some other kind of medical test? Or do you foresee even a decade out this pretty much staying in the laboratories of the big pharma folks? Or does it make it out into other areas? And if so, which other areas? You're actually very on the point on stating this because on one hand, we could see this coming that you go in the lab, get the biopsy taken, it gets sequenced. And basically, with the path report, you also get back a run of your simulated cells and the prediction of what would the ideal combination or other kind of therapy would be for your specific kind of cancer, for example. So, so it, might, uh, it might make its way actually into healthcare facilities yes. as it becomes more accessible, maybe not quite as expensive and complicated and a little bit more maybe user-friendly and and accurate and whatnot that you think it'll it'll eventually trickle its way kind of more into hospitals as well. I believe that's eventually the way to go, yep. but but the road is very long ahead. Yep. Well, I appreciate you being frank about that. Before I start recording, when I talk to CEOs, I always give them an, an extra long, I don't call it a warning, but I, I give them an extra long, like what this is about, because a lot of the time the CEO's job is to talk about how it's all going to happen tomorrow. And I appreciate that you did not do that with us today, Christoph. And you were very <laughs> frank about the challenges ahead, but also the opportunities and how it all works and fits together. So that's it for time. But I very much appreciate you, Christoph, being able to share your insights with us here at AI and Industry. So thanks again. Thanks for the interview, Dan. See you. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, most of our podcast listeners get our, the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.